Good morning, Bethany family. In the middle of John 6, where Jesus has been teaching the people about himself being the bread of life, we find him saying this, Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. John 6, 35. Clearly, Jesus is people teaching these people directly and us today that God draws people to his son, Jesus. In the same way that the Holy Spirit's primary task is to point to Jesus and all that he did and taught. My friends, it's all about Jesus. But there's more to be had in this verse. And for me, it's this. I am not learning when I'm talking. I learn when I am listening. When I'm listening with my eyes as I observe what is happening around me. My listening with my nose as I smell what is happening around me. Listening with my hands as I feel things. Listening with my ears as I let God and other people speak. Today, we have the privilege of listening to one of our longtime members of Bethany Covenant Church, as she tells us some of her life experiences that many of us have not experienced personally. Today is a chance for us to learn as we listen to Carol Gooden. In keeping with the series Praying the Blues, the Psalms of Lament, today we experience a contemporary lament. Well, this is the part of the sermon this morning and our worship together today that I have most been looking forward to. A chance to uh, sit and chat with Carol Gooden about herself, her life, and I'm looking forward to her opinions, her understandings about things. Um, I want to experience them as best I can from what she tells us today. I do not anticipate that she speaks for all African Americans, any more than I would speak for all white Americans. Also, she is free to say, I don't have an answer. Um, we're just going to have a conversation together and see where God will take this conversation and begin what I hope will be conversations across our church, where we begin to be able to understand each other, the differences, but also the similarities, and we can stand with each other because we begin to understand each other. That's what I'm looking forward to. Before we begin, pray with me. Holy Father, pour your spirit out upon Carol and myself and on all who are listening today that your word would be heard, your heart would be revealed, and our struggles would be realized as we listen to one another. In the name of Jesus who came to bring us all salvation and life together. We pray this. Amen. Well, Carol, you've been a part of this church for nearly 15 years. I have. You've uh, raised your two children here. Yep. It's marvelous. That's Tell us great. just a little bit about yourself. Some people may not know you. Um, sure. Who is Carol Gooden? So I'm um, a mother of two teenagers. We've been at Bethany for um, about 15 years. Um, you know, I enjoy being a mother and we've enjoyed worshiping here at Bethany. About 15 years ago, we came in for a visit and as we were leaving, my kids say to, said to me, mom, can this be our church? And I was like, yes, because we were looking for a church at the time and I really liked it, but they chose, um, Bethany. And so we've been here ever since, um, 
I graduated from Trinity College in Hartford. I also graduated from uh, UConn Law School. I hold a doctorate from UConn Law School, and I'm a member of um, the Connecticut Bar. I work for the state of Connecticut. And again, I've been here for 15 years. How great. Wonderful. A lot of achievements. Fantastic. Okay, let's dive right in. In recent weeks, we've seen a lot of turmoil. Sparked not only because of the death of George Floyd, but the accumulative deaths of people over the course of many, many years. What was your initial reaction when you heard about what happened to George? Um, this is going to probably surprise you. I wasn't that traumatized or paying as much attention to it. And that in itself is a terrible statement. And the reason why is because it had become par for the course. You know, it was just another shooting of a black man. And as um, the protest grew and the issue became nationwide, um, I've had dialogue within um, uh, with folks in my community about the fact that this has been an issue that has been ongoing for several decades. There was an article yesterday in CNN and it uh, listed the numerous shootings of blacks just going about their own normal, you know, routine day of life. And I would like to separate the issue of minorities being shot, blacks being shot, while they were doing regular routine um, behavior as compared to someone who may have been violating the law. And that is the issue that not a lot of folks understand that that is really what Black Lives Matter is about. It's about violence towards Black Americans and in particular, black Americans who have not, they're not engaging in any behavior that's unusual. They're at home, sleeping in bed. They're in their own apartments. A lot of these cases are very, very famous. And that's the key. What, that is the issue of what Black Lives Matter is about primarily. It's about other things as well. Um, but we're not defending anyone that commits a violent crime and, you know, gets the repercussions. We're talking about black civilians who are at home in bed asleep, jogging, um, you know, in their own apartments mm. that are getting killed. Now, we've, we've seen, thank you, we've seen a lot of signs and T-shirts with Black Lives Matter. Um, and uh, I've heard a number of people, um, most of them white people, mm -hmm. Who have said, well, all lives matter. And, well, what do you think about that? And we've never said that all lives didn't matter. And, and I'm not sure where that perception came from. We never said that all lives didn't matter. What we're saying is that black lives matter as well. And black lives are in danger. So blue lives matter, black lives matter, all lives matter. But Black lives right now are being threatened with violence and it's becoming, since the, the shooting with George, there was another shooting um, last Friday. Yes. He was shot in the back. 
And here was somebody that was drunk and um, the police was having a difficult time controlling him. And for some reason he was shot in the back and he's dead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's an issue. And I think the other, one of the other responses I've gotten is that, well, you know, um, other people are dying as well. And again, I, I get back to the point, are they dying while they're in bed asleep, while they're out jogging, you know, while they're in their own apartment watching television, standing on the corner of Wendy's, you know, not doing anything and just getting shot. That's the difference. Okay. Um, I think there is a perception that um, African-Americans are dangerous and it's that fear to me that creates a lot of these violent confrontations because the perception is um, we're either criminals, we're going to hurt you. And I've encountered that myself in many occasions. And so um, as an example, uh, decades ago, there was a woman who um, she killed her family, her children, I think. And then she just said, oh, you know, it was a black guy that did it. And everybody believed her for the longest time Mm -hmm. until there was an investigation and it came out that she was a person that did actually kill her family. I don't remember which family members. But there was no hesitation whatsoever in believing that it was a black guy that did it. And it's so there is just that perception that we are dangerous criminals, thieves, liars, um, and, and that's, that's hard. And that is what I think contributes partially to some of what's going on, just that perception. And we've heard certain leaders say, you know, categorize minority groups as, you know, thieves, criminals, and liars. Um, they weren't referring to African-Americans, but um, that generalization, um, you hear that sometimes. And, and so people are afraid of us naturally, instinctively. I walk into an elevator, you know, somebody grabs their purse and it's like, hmm. I don't want your purse. Um, you know, you go into a retail store, you're followed. Um, I live in the town of Berlin. I've lived here for years. I've gone out jogging, followed by the police, multiple occasions. And, you know, the... I did have a conversation with a police officer. He said, no, 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 I'm not following you. I said, okay. I then changed my route. A couple of years later, I changed my route. And like within the first day, running, police cop goes by. Second day, running, the police. I anticipated that I would see him again. So I wore my UConn Law School um, t-shirt and I waved at him. Third day, I never saw him again. So I was out running and I didn't trespass. I was just doing routine, normal, um, you know, activity. I was mistaken for a lady of the night, um, again, just out jogging. And so it's just, you get that, that's part of your life. That's what you go through on a day-to-day basis. So you've been personally oh, yeah. profiled, discriminated against. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Have you, Absolutely. Have you ever felt threatened or hated because you are black? No, um, not threatened per se. Um, I live in Berlin. Berlin's a pretty um, peaceful town. I'm primarily here at Bethany, <laughs> so no one's ever threatened me here. Um, when I'm not at Bethany, I'm at home or at, at work. Um, just discrimination in the sense that there is the perception, again, that um, you're either a criminal or doing something, um, you know, that's against the law without you, you actually doing, doing anything. Um, I will, I do want to say, and I want to make sure I say this um, early on before I forget, I've been at Bethany for 15 years. Obviously, there's a reason why we've been at Bethany for 15 years. Um, my kids have felt very comfortable here. I also, ha you know, have really good neighbors in Berlin. And, um, and I say that to say, I think that um, not everyone has an issue with Black Lives Matter. And I've actually gotten a lot of support within the church and within the community. And I think that speaks volumes. However, there are national, international protests um, about the violence towards Black Americans, and it's an issue that has to be um, addressed. Um, I was listening to NPR today earlier, and um, they had someone talking about um, the economic discrimination against African Americans and some of the violence that associated with it going way back into the early 20th century. And I don't know, one of the things I wanted to say today to make sure people understand is African-Americans have historically been discriminated against um, economically. There was um, policies, government policies that restricted their access to wealth. Um, restricted their access, for example, to for mortgages so that they could own homes. It was legal at one point um, to have restrictive covenants that would uh, disallow a homeowner to sell their homes to an African-American. So that primary vehicle of wealth, accumulating wealth, African-Americans didn't even have access to mortgages um, until... Um, I want to say the late 1930s, 1940s, when um, they started outlawing, um, outlawing um, redlining practices. So it's just in the past few generations where home ownership has been attainable. And home ownership, as we know, is one of the means of um, accumulating wealth in this country. They've also been denied access to education historically. Um, and, you know, we have uh, state uh, cases that try to um, bring that issue and have it resolved. It's still an issue. So between access to education, lack of access to education, lack of access to um, economical, economic wealth, they've been stuck in the ghetto, so to speak, because of policies, federal government policies. So we're not in ghettos because we're stupid and we can't learn or, you know, we don't want to learn or we're lazy. Um, there's been policies in place 
that have really created economic um, injustice and discrimination. And it's this is in your t historic test textbook. You can pick it up and read about it if you want to. But I think there's a perception that um, you're either, um, you know, I, I don't know if people understand why African-Americans don't have access to wealth and why they, the communities that they live in are so poor. I'm not saying that these policies have everything to do with it, but they certainly have a major part, um, contrib con major contribution in terms of if you can't even buy a house, if you can't get into a college, these things, um, you know, are going to not allow you to move forward and have access to a decent life. Hmm. Wow. Well, you've already really answered this question, but in case there's something else, um, um, are there some things that you think white Americans need to know that we don't know about the discrimination against African Americans? I told you the story before, and I'll tell it again as an example. My son, uh, Khalil, attends Berlin High School, and... Um, a couple of years ago when the Trayvon Martin incident occurred, he was wearing his hoodie to school and there was a school policy against wearing hoodies. And he was being the typical teenager and, you know, um, being belligerent and, and, and insisting on wearing his hoodie to school as a form of protest and about the Trayvon Martin uh, situation. And um, I tried to explain to him that it really, that policy of hoodie, wearing hoodies to school had a lot to, more to do with safety because of the school shootings rather than discrimination. He didn't believe it. So he still was being the typical teenager, insisted on wearing his, his hoodie to school for which he got a detention. Um, I got a call from a school administrator explaining, I said, oh yeah, he should get a detention because, you know, he and I had that conversation. I explained to him what the hoodie policy was about. And he insisted on wearing his hoodie because he was being, you know, typical teenager. Um, so he received the detention, went to serve his detention and decided that I'm not going to serve my detention and I'm going to get up and I'm going to leave and I'm not serving my detention. And the school administrator told him at that point, if you leave this detention hall, I'm going to call the police on you. Now, this has been, this is a common issue with white Americans calling the cops on black Americans for whatever they feel like. And they use it as almost as a threat, as a weapon, because they know that we are terrified of the police. And they know what can happen when the police interacts with an African-American. This isn't a school setting. This is a, a, a student that is an honor student who um, is an athlete, who has been a member of Bethany for 15 years, a good kid, and wasn't threatening, but just being a, a typical kid. And literally said, because I asked her, I went through... You know, I called the school and I asked them, what exactly is your policy um, for calling the police or getting the police involved? It involved drugs, it involved um, assault, it involved um, harassment. All of these, um, you know, behaviors that didn't at all um, relate to anything that my son did. 
And yet she told him she was going to call the cops on him. And when she he told me, I couldn't believe it. And she said she actually thought that was okay. And, you know, I did go into the school and have a conversation with the school and made them understand that that was not okay. And she ended up apologizing. But um, so, yeah, that's, you know, calling the cops on black Americans for maybe because they feel threatened by us. My son is not threatening. <laughs> he's, you know, he's not a threatening kid. Um, so, yeah, th that is not an uncommon situation where we're being threatened, you know, with police, um, you know, activity if we don't comply with whatever it is that the, um, the uh, white person wants us to do. So that you've experienced discrimination in the schools, you've experienced discrimination in town. Mm -hmm. How about church? Have you ever experienced discrimination at church? Um, no. There was one incident that I thought was amusing. It's not really that funny now. Um, years and years and years ago, I went to um, drop my kids off at the camp that we have. I even forget the name of the camp. Um, and, you know, so I was questioned, like, so you know, where are you from and what church are you with? And the, the, the tone of the questioning was with suspicion. Mm. Um, and it was funny because the person who was questioning me like that, I knew their mother. And as soon as I said her name, they were like, oh, okay. But you always get that you have to justify your why you're here and why you're in this space. You know, you almost have to overcome all the time that I'm not here, I'm not a threat, I'm not here legally, I'm not here to do anything bad. I actually belong here. I have to prove it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so other than that, like I said, we've been here for 15 years. Um, there's, there are some people who clearly are not comfortable, but I wouldn't say that um, would r rise to the level of discrimination. Um, there are several other members here who are African-American and they don't, I, I can say that they've not said to me that they've had that, that experience or concern. How, how does your faith influence your response or your reaction to all this going on? And I'm not just talking about now, but I mean, there's been racial discrimination long before you were born and it continues to this day. How does your faith influence you and in, in how you deal with that? So my faith is what keeps me grounded. It's what keeps me from getting getting too depressed or too stressed out. So for me, it's a, it's a personal way of dealing with the day-to-day -day, um, issues. Um, so it gives me strength and it's been you know, my salvation, which is, you know, I'm here all the time. I have to be here. I need to be here. Um, so it, it's, it's a source of strength for me. Um, and I think in general, it probably allows me to accept um, 
you know, people of all races and be able to be friends with them and not have hate towards any group or race. One of the things that I've noticed <clears throat> a little different this time around with uh, these rallies and marches and and uh, the tragedies that have happened, including even this was last Friday, again, another African-American male uh, killed, uh, being shot in the back, is that these gatherings um, are more a mix mm. of people of color and mm -hmm. white Americans, Asian Americans, mm -hmm. Um, international. Latinos, international people. It's gone across the world. Um, what? Why do you think that is? Because the situation is pretty bad. <laughs> and I don't know if Americans realize this, but other countries are aware and watching what's going on. And um, if you're coming from a country and you're an African-American, you know, your embassy is explaining to you how to interact with, um, you know, the police in America. So this is not, this is happening on the world stage. And I think, I don't think Americans really understand that. I think they think this is going on in their own backyard. But it's, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, like I said, you know, other countries warn their black citizens when they're coming to this country. So people all over the world know what's going on and because there's been so many incidents there's no way to really deny what's going on anymore i think um african americans have always made these claims but now that there are video cameras everyone has a video we can now actually verify these claims and so that's another part of what's happening is People are seeing these images all over the world. You know, there was an image of an African-American CNN um, interviewer getting arrested while he was live on CNN television. It was like, and he wasn't doing anything. And he was trying to explain that he would comply repeatedly. And they still arrested him on live television. Mm -hmm. And people all over the world watch CNN. People know what's going on all over the world. Um, you know, I have cousins in England and, you know, they, they think it's much worse and they're always praying for me and it's, it's funny. But, um, yeah, so people are watching and, unfortunately, they think what's going on is very ugly. So. My sense is that there's more solidarity than there was back in my day when I was in college when the civil rights movement was very strong and Martin Luther King was still with us. Um, and I agree, which is, you know, what I said earlier, um, based on the relationships I have with my neighbors and other members in the community, come be, even here at Bethany, I do know that I have um, support. Um, and not all, you know, white Americans hate African Americans and vice versa, by the way. Um, so I agree. We are making some progress. I hope so. So a question from your perspective, what, what can white Americans do that would be helpful in this whole movement, I believe, toward racial reconciliation, racial righteousness, racial relationships, uh, 
together, what, what, in your opinion, can white Americans do? I mean, that's the, that's a tall order. I think, um, really understand that the plight of African Americans is really bad. It's their suffering. They don't have access to healthcare. Um, a lot of times they don't have access. They face discrimination at work. Um, they have a hard time accumulating wealth. There's been generation after generation of economic um, discrimination. And it's life is very difficult for the average African-American. And it makes them frustrated. Um, and, you know, I think um, they want to see a change. And, and that's why these protests are not stopping and I'm, you know, almost fearful of what's going to happen if the shooting of African-Americans don't stop because it can't go on. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's not um, business as usual. It's been business as usual for decades, but people are no longer willing to accept it because it's really should, reflects poorly on all of us. Um, the blacks and whites alike, I think, when um, there's so much violence to one, towards one race and one race is being oppressed. It's just not healthy for the entire community. Well, I think I can safely say we're sure glad you're a part of this community and a significant part of it at that. And your kids are as well. We really appreciate them. They're they good love, kids. They love Bethany. And I'm glad. They do. Um, before we close the interview, I want to make sure, that, is there anything else you would like to say to your church family on this topic? I mean, you've covered a waterfront of experience um, and expressions, which I appreciate because we won't, we won't learn if we don't listen. And we need to listen. And I'm glad for this opportunity to listen to you. Is there anything else you wish to say on this uh, before we wrap this? Yeah, I'm, so just, just to be clear, I'm talking about my own personal experiences. Um, I did study law, and I do have some background there. And um, I've lived primarily in all-white neighborhoods for a very long time. And so I am speaking, coming from a place of really understanding and seeing both sides. Um, and I really believe that in the future, um, there will be movement towards equality and it's happening. Um, but I really hope that people understand that um, lives for um, African-Americans, it's very challenging. Um, and, and more so, I think, than white Americans. It's, that's, and I could go into, you know, decades of um, federal policy, state policies and laws that's created that framework um, of oppression. And, but it almost sounds like um, a movie um, because it's so unreal. I was listening to NPR today and they were describing some of the, the violence towards um, black American businesses and homes um, decades ago, you know, where millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of property 
um, owned by black Americans was destroyed um, in vandalism and African Americans were killed in numerous riots over the years. Every time they tried to access um, wealth and start to build themselves up. This is back in, I would say, 1920. They've been, they were, these riots were horrific. And so we've come quite a long way. Um, and, but there's, there's definitely um, room for growth and opportunity for growth. But it's, it's, I, when I listen today to some of the history, I just couldn't believe that we got to where we got to without more violence because it, it was so horrific. Some mm. of the stories that I listened to today wow. on wow. the news. And, and that's, you know, recounting history. Well, thank you, Carol. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Mm. I thank you for being a, a partner in this ministry together at Bethany Covenant Church. And I hope this is just the beginning, not just of a conversation, but some actionable um, actions that can move us towards more racial reconciliation and racial righteousness and learning to get along and listening to each other and growing together um, as a community family. This is what God wants, I'm certain. Mm -hmm. And if this is what God wants, it's what I want, and I'm sure what you want, and we want it for Bethany as well. So thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. A Good Friday sermon first preached by Baptist pastor S.M. Lockridge, entitled It's Friday But Sunday's Coming, became famous when presented by Tony Campolo. The sermon had lines like this. It's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding, and Peter's denying that he knows the Lord. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and hands of my Lord? Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. At the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple that separates sinful men from holy God was torn from top to bottom because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping and hell is partying, but that's because it's Friday and they don't know it, but Sunday's coming. My lifelong friend and fellow covenant pastor, Jim Sundholm, who died earlier this year, took that sermon and wrote the follow-up to it, the application of it, entitled, It's Sunday, but Monday's coming. Jim's sermon takes us from what Jesus did on Resurrection Sunday to the place where we take on the work of Jesus beginning the next day, Monday. Yes, we can revel in the joy and reality of the resurrection, both Jesus and ours, but we're also called by God to take on the work of Jesus to bring hope and help and life to the poor, the outcast, the oppressed peoples of the world with the resurrection both through Jesus and for eternity, but also to raise them up now for living each day. Conversations at Bethany have only just begun. More listening is needed for us to learn from one another and be family with one another as Jesus desires us to be. But ultimately, action is needed. 
to change the culture of our community, our America, to become more and more like the culture of the kingdom of God. That God culture cannot be legislated, but that culture can come about by love, a love that listens, a love that learns, a love that when done together does the will of God by doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. From the prophet Micah, chapter six, verse eight. This, my friends, is what it means to invite people to know God, to inspire people to follow Jesus, and to evolve people in serving our neighbors, both near and far. May it be so. Amen.